Golay presents Recorded History with the RecordHub.com. 100% Irish and direct to your door. Hello, Recorded History buffs, and welcome to Recorded History with the RecordHub.com. I'm your host, Ed Smith, and this is the podcast where you get to hear about the life story of some of your favorite musicians, comedians, actors, authors, presenters, and basically, well, anyone cool and gracious enough to divulge their musical CV. On this week's episode, I have the deep and meaningfuls with Brezzy, co-founder of A Lust for Life, host of the hugely successful Where Is My Mind podcast, author, PhD student, musician, and all-round sound fella, to name but a few of his phenomenal achievements. Now, as you'd expect, he's a very self-reflective, self-aware, and generally very thoughtful man, but he's also very open, honest, and funny about his life from his upbringing in Mullingar, his musical career, and how his love and fascination with music has played such a vital part, not just as a job, but really, really in a very real sense, as a lifeline to him through some very, very bleak times mentally. Absolutely loved talking to him, and hopefully you'll enjoy listening to him just as much. Look, I'll stop mattering and let you get into the inspiring life and musical times of Brezzy. Brezzy, listen, first of all, thanks so much for taking the time out of your eye-wateringly busy schedule to go on record about three of your favourite records for recorded history. We're going to bring you back to, you were born in Dublin. I was. Yeah, we won't, we won't dwell on that. <laughs> no. More but, than yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but you moved obviously down to Mullingar at a young age. Three. As they say, as you're three. Yeah. So we'll, we'll consider you a Mullingar man. You know, growing up, the youngest of five siblings, your father was in the army. So how would you describe your childhood then? You know, the youngest of five being raised by your mother, Mandy. Was it a hectic house or how would you describe it? Very liberal house. Yeah. I don't know. My mother was a kind of hippie-ish music teacher that like had traveled America in the 60s and you know, from Scotland, from Glasgow. And I, I I don't know whether it was her being liberal and saying, you do whatever you want, whatever you like doing, whatever you love, just go for it. Or she just couldn't be arsed trying to keep tabs on five of us. So <laughs> A fine uh, line. Yeah, it was, to be fair. But no, she, I, I grew up where my dad wasn't there for most of my childhood because he yeah. was overseas. And as a side note, you know, recently we heard a lot around the Irish Army and situations and some of the commentary, especially from the areas of the media, was very disappointing because they have a very small grasp of what the Defence Forces actually do and how many of them have to leave their families for long times to go as peacekeepers because they're one of the most respected peacekeepers globally because we were one of the only countries that hasn't colonized somebody. So the countries that we would go to, they would, like I lived in Lebanon and Israel, my dad, and the Lebanese loved the Irish. They trusted them. So they were always sent into certain locations that no other force were allowed to go into because the Irish lads diffused everything. And so, yeah, my dad was away most of the time and that was very confusing and, and weird. And then I was in a Christian brother school, primary school, which is even worse. I think the 80s and 90s and 80s primary schools in Ireland were, were grim old places. But yeah, I had an incredible childhood. The one thing I always say to people is I always knew what love was, which is a really important thing as a child. To be around love and to feel safe is the most important thing you can give to any child. And I felt both that's why I said things like back to the homelessness issue and issues we have here. You take that from a child, it'll affect them for the rest of their life. Absolutely. This isn't just a thing now. It's a thing that will affect thousands of children for years and that's how we should be perceiving everything. Was music a big part of the household then as well? Were you subject to a lot of musical hand-me-downs from your older brothers and sisters? I suppose they would have been coming through the 80s then, obviously, when you were seven, eight, nine. Were you exposed then to, to a lot of music? As, as a very young child that kind of influenced your choices later in life? Yeah, my brother said, my brother's an amazing musician. He's been in loads of bands and he's, he's, he, he, did, he did it all before me. He was signed to Sony, he recorded in New Orleans. Oh. He did all these stuff. He did some amazing bands he was in. He's a producer in Glasgow, Scotland. And he, he used to always say, say to me, never be a musical snob. And I was like, what do you mean by that? And he goes, find value in everything. You don't have to like every genre, yeah. but you know, you don't have to turn up your nose to it. So like in our house, we were listening to Boney M, ABBA, we were listening to Cure. We were listening to Suicidal Tendencies. We were listening to Cannibal Corpse. My brother was a big oh metaler. His yeah. first band was called Colostomy Bags. You know, this was our childhood. They were a punk <laughs> band that rehearsed in our in our front sitting room every day, every week. And like that was my childhood. So it was constantly around music. And then my grandmother, when she died, gave me her... She had to move to a, an apartment in Glasgow and they had a piano and it didn't fit in the apartment. So it was sent wow. on the ferry to me. And my grandmother very specifically said, that's for Niall. 
And five years of age, I started playing piano and I started figuring out melody. And I would sit there day and I, and the only the only thing I had to do for her was every every birthday and every Christmas send her a song, any song. What an incredible um, mm, gift! And that's how I learned. And my mum was a violin teacher, so she was teaching violin in the house, which is. I don't know if you've ever heard violin being learned. Unfortunately, yeah. uh, my own partner used to teach violin and clarinet. So Saturday mornings, having been out the night before in Castle Bar, she'd have to get up around 8, 9 for students. Oh, what about you, though? Oh, oh, I could hear it. I, yeah. I remember doing, I was studying Dreadful. for my leaving cert and mum was giving lessons downstairs. And, it's the worst. and there's this guy kept coming in week after week and he was just, he just wasn't bothering his arse. He was just terrible. He just wasn't practising. <laughs> he didn't want to be there. And I was studying, I think it was, at the time, it was like, uh, even certain maths. And I was sitting there and I couldn't figure out this bloody theorem. And I just stormed downstairs and went into the door and went, you're shite, you're <laughs> shite, you're shite, give up. And my mum was like, what? <laughs> and then he, he did, he gave up. Good uh, for you. And he was yeah. delighted. Yeah. He was like, thank God. So he, he was happy, my mum was happy, yeah. and I was happy. It's never going to happen. No, it's just stop. You've yeah. been doing three years of doing this, and you're still brutal. That brings us rather tidily. You were born in 80, so in and around 91, you were, well, I would have been 12, actually, when your first choice, 1992, Pearl Jam, for your first entry into your recorded history. What is it? It's the album, Pearl Jam's 10. And I was only 11, but I actually only started getting the appreciation of it when I was 14 or 15. Right, yeah. And I, when I was 11 or 12, I fell into kind of metal music. And just because I literally, you fall into what everyone else has fallen into. But a few of my mates, uh, about three or four of us, just had this unhealthy obsession for Pearl Jam. And a, a little bit more in Nirvana as well and, and Red Hot Chili Peppers, but it was Pearl Jam and... I've, I've started to think of why was it? What was the mm. reason that Pearl Jam became the band? And that album specifically. And what I'm coming to on it is that I think the likes of Pearl Jam and the likes of Nirvana, when we were in the 90s, young teenage men and women in Ireland had no language to describe emotion. They weren't allowed to talk about it. They had to repress it. They didn't know how to talk about it. You know, I used to always say my dad would go overseas and my mum would be like, don't cry. I'm like, why? pissing off for years really why, I, why can't I express how I'm feeling Yeah, I feel that what happened was there was a huge gap and bands like Pearl Jam filled it and they made you understand and you didn't know quite what they were talking about in some of their songs but you knew there was something there and it made you feel so all of a sudden the inability to communicate your own shit that you're dealing with kind of felt like it was being supported and facilitated by someone else doing it and that's why I think a lot of people in Ireland and across the world fell into grunge music. I think it's because it had that ability to describe and communicate that teenage. And it wasn't angst. It was just, just being a teenager is a pain in the hole. Like, it's just difficult. You know, it's like yeah, it's a, an interesting one for yeah. me, grunge, because I would have been coming up. I'm a little older than you. And I would have been maybe 16 then. It was such a massive part of my musical DNA. I think when I have this half-baked, half-arsed theory that the music you get into in and around your puberty... Mm is almost like getting a tattoo, that yeah. the intensity with which you engage, not just with music, maybe with the people that you're attracted to, your clashing with your family, with school, and the music that slips in while your pores are open, or your veins are open as such, is the one that I've been kind of chasing that dragon since, mm. as regards that intensity. Of, and I think Pearl Jam tapped into that rather more so, I think, than Nirvana, really looking back. But the interesting thing to me about grunge is that I was doing a special about grunge on the show but two years ago, I was like, oh, put the call out. Lad's got three hours on Sunday. Let's go. Let's, let's grunge it up. Let's go back to the 90s. And I struggled to fill an hour of, it's, without repeating myself, yeah. with the bands. And it's an interesting one. I think there's a certain snobbery, to go back to the snobbery, that there's a certain kind of disregard placed on grunge music, that it's not taken as seriously as it was then. There was a certain earnestness, which Eddie Vedder was a lightning rod for a lot of that, whereas Kurt Cobain was seen as very authentic, mm. angsty. You know, his angst was, his pain was was real. Whereas I think, and again, thank you for giving me the chance to listen, put on my 10 record again. I haven't listened to 10, in at least 10 years to 15 years. Mm. And it's dreadful because it was such a good friend of mine when I was a kid. So was, I want to thank you for that. It is flawless. It's flawless. And the musicianship in it, I think, as mm. well, with grunge music, there was this tendency that a lot of young people like me got into it because yeah. you could play the, the songs. Yeah. Because they weren't that Three testing, like yeah, yeah. Nirvana especially. I think Nirvana for me was more about the intensity of the sound rather than what he was saying. 
Um, which turns out was he was saying an awful lot. We just didn't know songs like Lithium. I would never have actually understood what in the name of God is this guy talking about. I just thought it was a word he made up. But with Pearl Jam, it was very much about, I think, what he was saying in in certain songs. And then he went on to Phytology and songs like Nothing Man and Better Man and these stunning pieces of work lyrically that I just think no one else was doing in grunge. The thing about grunge as a definition, a musical genre definition, it's very hard to define it's it. It's like Britpop. The, yeah, the, exactly. It's, it's nebulous. It's so broad. Yeah, you know. You could be ever clear with another band I loved and they then they wouldn't be perceived as a grunge band and then Sublime do you, do you regard and some them bands as a grunge band? actively didn't want to be called no. grunge and then some bands that weren't grunge and they were called Surf Rock I'm sure they didn't uh, want to be called yeah, Surf Rock it's either, nonsense so. really but you know there's no doubting I suppose 13 million copies sold since six times platinum and I think it's funny that when we were chatting about this on email you picked two particular songs yeah. from the record that weren't obviously the biggest Even Flow Alive Jeremy are the big hitters mm. obviously but you went for Black mm-hmm. and Release, which is the final mm-hmm. track. And they're the two songs that, I, that, that, as a teenager, were the ones that meant most to me. I'd oh. completely forgotten about them. No, Release Beautiful is just, I, I, I don't know if you heard Pearl Jam live in, um, I think it's Shade Stadium, I can't remember, it was one of them anyway. And Eddie Vedder sings Release and he does a speech before it. And he just says about some guy at the front going through some shit in his life and we're going to sing this from him. And whatever it, what it was, didn't say a lot. Uh, and the vocal delivery in that. So I was obsessed with vocal deliveries. Like, but the vocal delivery and release is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. But then Black, I think, same at the end, you know, I hope one day I'll have a beautiful, like that lyric, everything about it. And I, like, I did a little digging into the production on it as well and how he did those vocals. They, they, weren't, they weren't polished. They were absolutely, you know, one of the best rock singers that we've ever had he just went in and he just completely submerged himself in it. and that's the way it should be and I think that is the other thing I talk about with grunge modern music and this is no digging it. like some of it's amazing but it's very polished and clean and nice and very gridded I work in I own a recording studio I watch what happens you take all the humanity out of it when you do that and I think we really relate to that I think we relate to when people fuck up I think we relate to mistakes I think we relate to slightly dodgy tuning because it's more human and I yeah. think they're the songs we're still listening to now. And I just wonder if these perfectly pristine, polished pieces of work that are being put out now are going to be listened to in 10 years. Right, that's interesting. Do you think, actually, now that we're thinking and talking about it on a podcast, that the recent return and, I suppose, resurgence of the likes of vinyl and analogue ways of engaging with music, people have been trying to explain that as people are missing the authenticity that was there before? I have a theory. Oh. And it's... It's completely unfounded, like most of my theories. They're my favorite. Yeah, same as mine. There's no peer review of this. There's none of that. Yeah. I think, you know, every Christmas we have the same conversation. Why aren't we hearing any more great Christmas songs anymore? Because I think the great Christmas songs that we still listen to are warm. They're mm-hmm. slightly tuny and yeah. a bit out of, you know, not perfectly recorded. And they recorded an analog, probably tape machine, you know, last Christmas, all that kind of stuff. And I think that we kind of almost subliminally kind of pull ourselves more towards that type of sound, that yeah. sonic sound, the frequency response, the slight harmonic distortions that you get in these types of things, the way it's compressed by a tape and not by a like a digital kind of. Mm. And I think all of that stuff starts to play into it. And I think then if you look at the Pro Tools, I mean, Pro Tools has made the world a hell of a lot easier. Don't get me wrong. We're looking be, at Pro Tools right now. Yeah, absolutely. This but then your issue as well is musicianship. You get people who rely on it now. And so yeah. they don't get very good at their instruments. So they're like, oh, I can kind of get it fixed. I went, no, be, become a better player. I one of the luxuries of, of with Canon Studios. I've, I've seen a lot of the jazz lads come in. And these guys are some, some of the international players. We've had a few of them in. And they, they literally blow your head off. They're that talented. There's no, you don't mix them. You don't need to mix them. They mix themselves. So that musicianship and craft is is missing. And I think the other thing, while we're on it, <laughs> and, you know, I look at the Eddie Vedders and the Grunge and the Kirk Cobains and the Chris Cornells and all the rest. And I think, could you imagine you said to them, you have to come up with a TikTok thing for your song first. Jesus Christ. So what's happened to us now is that musicians have become content creators and we're not content creators, we're musicians. I said this in South by Southwest last year in front of a room full of technology heads. I said, we need to stop. You're going to ruin the industry. And one of them goes, well, TikTok's the future of music. I said, no, 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 it's not. Fucking musicians are the future of music. They always have been and always will be. But it's this idea. I like TikTok. I use it. But it should not come at the cost of you creating your music and songs and and what's happening now is musicians are getting so overwhelmed with having to do that that there's nothing left. There's no bandwidth left to actually sit down and write a record. 
But is it then that the music is only a part of a package that you're offering? Well, it is a marketing tool. It's a brilliant marketing tool. The marketing tool that used to be for an album was you'd have to go out and you'd have to play every radio station in the country. You'd have to travel and you'd spend all that money and you'd have to get up and do six o'clock, you know, TV shows. And and you're bollocks by then, especially if you're an international artist who's touring. And then your voice goes, so it can be difficult. So TikTok's a great marketing tool and that's what it should be perceived as. And and the industry, yes, it is frightening, but it is incredible. It is such an enjoyable kind of mind mess of figuring it all out. And I am way past caring anymore in my game. I'm, you know, in terms of as as a band, I just do it because I love it now. I'm not trying to appease anything anymore, which is lovely. But I'm always asked for advice. And the only advice I ever give to young artists is as long as you can hold on to the rawness, because it's the rawness is that what that's what I listen to is the rawness is that the rawness of youth, the rawness of being untainted by an industry that will taint the shite out of you when it gets its hands on you. But the here's the thing. I don't think the record labels want that either. I think they're kind of going, oh my God, this is, we don't want these being run by accountants and lawyers. And I think that's just the way it is. And I think things I don't think are going to change anytime soon, but that's what I would say to young artists is just find the rawness to get you into it and, and do your best never to lose it. And just to go back then to your childhood again, you're in and around 11. I read a powerful anecdote you told in a newspaper a couple of years ago, and I hope you don't mind me bringing it up or you can retell it mm-hmm. if you want, about how the violence in schools in the 80s. Now, the 80s feels like a long time ago, but it really isn't. And you were coming home from school, I think you were eating a sandwich in class, mm-hmm. and something happened with a teacher that, I mean, it's not so shocking or surprising, but you were hit by our fishing rod. Yeah, in the face, and I uh, split my eye open. And now I'll be clear here that it was a daily occurrence in that bloody school. That school was a really, I know, funny enough, bringing, we were at, not funny at all, but we were at the FLA. We had to do a rehearsal for Glyphs Dunin before yeah. it. And they said to me, we have a rehearsal place. It's, it's St. Mary's CBS. And I'm like, oh my God. I had me back. It was the old gym. Did, did the feelings. Oh my God. I got PTSD. A absolutely really? horrible feeling when I walked into that place. I still do. I still think about it. And it wasn't just me. It was everybody, you know, and that was, I suppose, one of the saving graces. You didn't feel like you were being picked out. It was, and it was pretty brutal, some of it. I'm not underselling it. And, you know, I've talked to my friends about it. You know, it's definitely had an impact on us all. But I do remember the big thing that I had the impact on was when I was walking home and Mm. the, the shopkeeper looked at me and said, you deserved it. Yeah. And I remember thinking, hold on a sec, your society's backing this all up. So that was the stuff that threw me a lot. And ultimately, when I look at, you know, friends, my friends, and you, you probably look at your friends, what we ended up doing in the 90s was we, we learned to completely detach ourselves emotionally because that was a great survival tool. Because when that kind of stuff was happening to you, you kind of just, cut. and I feel blessed that I had a, a very supportive, loving family. Imagine you didn't. This is what I talk about when people talk about mental health. I'm not talking about mental health. I'm talking about emotion. I'm talking about the fact that if this type of stuff happens to you as a child, if you, for example, are living in Dublin and your family can't get a home, that will affect you for the rest of your life. Mm. That's just humanity. That's a human, that's a healthy human response to what is an absolute shit show of a society that, that should be allowing you have a place to live for your family. So it's the same in the schools in Ireland. It's the same. It was in the 60s, 70s, 80s. I'm doing a project now that's working around things like course from confinement in Ireland. We have a past. It's a dark one. You can't avoid it. We got to talk about it. We got to talk about it really supportively. And that's why I do the work that I do. Um, you know, we're these purveyors of Keologus crack and the Irish people are this, that and the other. We are, but we have a past that we haven't carried because it's so shameful. So we buried it. And was music and then obviously sport, you know, you're into the GA and the rugby in a, in a real way. And then music, obviously, as you started playing piano at the age of five and then you went into form your own band. Was music an outlet or a safe haven for you? Yeah, it was. Absolutely. Being in a band was. Yeah. I was in a band called Ramsgard. <laughs> that ironically, Ramsgard. Ramsgard. It stood for Rise Almighty Satan, Come and Rule. So I kept thinking of that pecking Christian brother with the fishing rod in the back of my head. <laughs> um, but I, I, music, so sport for me, if I mean, even though I became a professional athlete and became a big part of my life, I never loved it. Yeah. I'm going to be straight up honest about it. I, wow. It, it I felt comfortable doing it because I was a big guy. I liked sport. I liked the social element because I was very, very socially anxious. I didn't really go out. So I was able to do it when I was in teams. 
I got good at it quite quickly and I kind of felt like I belonged to something and that was great. Um, I always loved Gaelic more than I ever loved rugby. Gaelic football was definitely my first love, first sport. I loved the simplicity of Gaelic football. But music is, I always say sport is what I did, music is what I am. And that's the difference. It's, I think about everything music. And has your relationship with music evolved as you have, what is your relationship with music now, do you think? Really healthy yeah. now because I've removed the industry side of it. And, you know, I talked to Cathy Davey about this at the weekend. There's, there's, a, there's literally a graveyard of musicians who just f- not feel like people all will go, well, you didn't make it. That's why you're doing it. They actually just went, no, I can't do this. Yeah. It's not because they weren't good enough or it wasn't because the industry rejected them. They were just like, I don't want to do it. It's just, just, it makes me feel like I can't sleep at night. And now, to be fair, the industry has been relatively okay to me. You know, I've been dropped like third period French many times and <laughs> it's grand. It's part of the process. Rejection is a big part of the yep. game. If you don't yep. want to do yep. this, don't. If you don't like rejection, don't do this game. But um, there is a huge sway of people who just got out of it just to be musicians again. Now, it's, if I was 20, I might be different. I might be like, all right, I'm going to give this all a shot and I'm going to, I'm going to get signed and I'm going to do this again. But I have absolutely zero interest in it. I just love being a musician. Just go on to your second choice of your recorded history, Brezzy. We're still in the 90s, still in the same, I suppose, wheelhouse as Pearl Jam. Yeah, I'm sorry it wasn't more eclectic. No, I'm glad you weren't because, again, it gave me another opportunity to revisit a massive album for me back in the 90s. Like, 1994 to me, when the album, this album, we'll get to it in a second, what it is. But I want to go through some of the albums. 1994 to me is one of the greatest Mm. years in music. You've got definitely maybe Park Life came out. With the birth of Britpop, really, Weezer's the Blue Album, Nirvana's MTV Unplugged, Pavement's Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain, mm. Portishead's Dummy, Jeff Buckley, Grace, Johnny Cash's American Recording started. That's just the tip of the iceberg. See, Weezer was very close to this one. I oh, I'm glad because we would have been here for four days yeah, if we yeah. picked Weezer Blue. But the planets aligned that year and you've chosen as your second choice for your recorded history as? Super Unknown, Soundgarden. Yeah. And for an abundance of reasons, but it's funny and now I know why. I genuinely know why, because you go back to Chris Cornell's history and he was doing the same thing Eddie Vedder was doing. He was communicating something that we didn't know what it was, but we felt it. And it was that same thing that we kept finding ourselves being comforted by, even though it was dark, you were comforted by that darkness because you felt somebody else was experiencing something similar to yourself, but you just didn't have the words. And like, you know, Fell on Black Days, for example, as a song, listening to it now, it makes total sense. Tragically, it makes even more sense now knowing what happened to Chris Cornell. Yeah, like suicide is the yeah, final track. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, you start to realize this guy has been suffering all his life. Um, the greatest rock singer of all time. And I, I really believe that. I think it, it just his vocal capacity. And, you know, people will argue it'll be, you know, Led Zeppelin and you get into it. And there's probably merits on every side. But for me, it was Chris Cornell. Yeah. And interestingly enough, the guy who produced the Blizzard's first two records. Michael Beinhorn produced that record. Really? And that's why I, I just, out of nowhere, when wow. we, we got signed on the first album, they went, who do you want to do the record? And you and said was, Michael Beinhorn. As a joke. <laughs> and about two weeks later, I was on a phone call Sweet to Michael God. Beinhorn in LA and he flew over to us. And me and him, it was the most volatile, oh. in the best possible way. It was all designed by him. He wanted it to be volatile. And it was just, he was trying to get, he tried to fire a drummer the first day just to get his get. You know, so that was a bit of conflict. He was trying to create industry, create an energy yeah. that would come through the speakers. Yeah. But every Amazing. single day we just sat with him and asked him about Supernote. We didn't give a shit about what we were doing. We were like, that snare sound. And like, where did you get it? Like, and, you know, talk to me about Chris Cornell, talk to me about the breakdown of. Yeah. And like, apparently Chris Cornell was playing a lot of the instruments on that record. Okay. Even the drum. Jesus. You know, he was that talented and he had this sure idea of what he wanted in his head. But Beinhorn, to be fair and for his credit, it's definitely the best sounding grunge record. And he also, Binary Word, produced Celebrity Skin, which was also astoundingly. I think Courtney Love gets disregarded and disrespected. A serious songwriter, a great singer. Mm. And I think Hole stand toe to toe with any of the big three, which we're talking about. I remember saying to him, and it was quite a sore subject with him because he didn't produce the vocal. Oh. Apparently, he just wasn't getting the vocal. He had this amazing, savagely sounding album. But Chris Cornell had this vocal coach with him all the time. That's the difference with the label. The label paid to just have a vocal coach yeah, yeah, with this yeah. guy day and night. What he ate, what he didn't eat, what he drank. This guy was on the side. So that's, this record is just, is just, out, like for any kind of audio freaks who love 
how things sound. Okay. Find a better snare sound. That's uh, what I will say yeah, anyway. Metallica could probably learn it. Yeah, yeah, well, I think, I just think it was just, if you listen to it again and you listen to the fact that in, in it, there's lots of time variance. He falls in and out of time. That type of stuff is the stuff that I start to listen out to. But it's, it's in what we always say, it's in a pocket in terms of rhythm. Mm. And what happens with a lot of modern, modern rock music, it is on a grid. And if you look, I used to remember Binary used to say, if it's reggae music, you play behind it. That's the pocket is behind it. If it's funk music, you, you play behind it. If it's rock music, he used to say to our drummer and to our uh, bass player, you got to be so ahead of the beat, mm. literally ahead of the beat. So we chase you. That's how you create an exciting rock record. So the singer and the guitar players are trying to keep up the rhythm section. Whereas now the rhythm section is perfectly on the button. And then if you listen to some of the great rock tracks, it feels exciting because it is feckin' exciting because the drummer and the bass player are going, come on the fuck. Yeah. And that's go. what I love about it. Yeah. And that's what Beinhorn would bring out. But even Moon Man would probably be the heaviest, kind of most open The Day track I Tried to it. Live. It's, yeah, it's a beautiful a bit, song. Yeah, it's like Day it. I Tried to Live. But then, I mean, Fell on Black Days to me, yeah, I think, yeah, is, yeah. is, and it's very clever as a track. It's a very clever time signature. It's a very clever, you know, the rose and everything. That yeah, record. I think, you know, I play on my own show his version of Nothing Compares to You, which he recorded for a radio station not long, actually, before he passed away. And I think his voice, again, it just proved to me that he was the greatest voice of his generation. I think he was. I think Absolutely the audio slave stuff proved it as well. I mean, I think I remember the, in Hungary when he sang with Eddie Vedder and the two of them started to go at it. And it was kind of, it was like neck and neck. Until yeah, yeah. Then, and then Chris Cornell goes... I All right, into the fifth gear, and, yeah. yeah. And like, okay, <laughs> Eddie Vedder just fell. You wouldn't bet against you, him. Yo, no. Eddie, like when you're, when you're out singing Eddie Vedder, something's gone seriously right in your career. You know, of course, Cornell so tragically took his life in 2017. I wanted to ask you about the current state of play with mental health and music. Mm. You know, we've seen the tragic results of people with, who are suffering from um, serious mental health issues at the level of Chris Cornell not make it. But I, I've often wondered, I wanted to ask, somebody who's been in the business, you know, maybe since 2004, the evolution and, I suppose, proliferation of social media, the likes of Twitter, Instagram, all the rest of it, TikTok. Has that set us back? I think the, the reality of somebody is in that much pain. It's not social media. It's not, you know, social media absolutely can really highlight the cracks. Um, but to me, the big thing you need to talk about when you talk about mental health that isn't often talked about enough is the word trauma is what was experienced in their life that has them, you know, in some cases, able to write such stunning music that we we feel completely magnetized towards because of all that. But then on the same hand, that like, they're still human beings that have had to navigate. I saw, uh, it was recent, I don't know who it was actually, it wasn't a huge, art, big enough artist, didn't know him that well, but it was obviously big enough and he had to pull a few gigs because of his head. And the abuse he got for mm. it. Yeah. And is this the humanizing of the people that you see? And just because they're in a position of success for being a musician, you feel that it gives you an open right to say that to them. I worry about it. I worry. I actually worry where society's gone. And music aside, I was doing a, an interview recently and they talked about the neoliberal self and how we have this neoliberal world, which is all about being competitive and the market. And we've actually become that as people. Everything about it is we rate people, we rate everything, we're competitive with everyone, we're, we're against everybody. There's this autonomous, we're individual, we're not yeah. collective. And I think that's where social media is doing the damage. Social media's currency is division. As, as Leonard Cohen said, there's a crack in everything. So light gets in, but they're tapping into those cracks. And social media for me isn't going to change. We have to. And it was the quote that said, it's no measure of sanity to be well adjusted to an insane world. This is insane. Yeah. We need to stop for a second and think about it. Whether you're a musician, whether you're working, working in radio, whether you're a podcast, I don't care what you are, you're working in a bank. This is not normal. It's moving too fast. And we're getting run over by it. And I think this is what I'm trying to, to say to people is, we often told by the wellness industry, there's something you've got to fix in yourself. Something you're not strong enough to do. There's something you're not resilient and you, you can get more resilient. Let's just be positive. Bullshit. There's something going on in this world that's really intensely difficult to deal with for so many people. And we need to stop outsourcing blame, you know, putting it on ourselves all the time. And I think that's the one thing you talk about. I know this in music. I worry about the wellness industry and how it messages things right. and how it 
brings the human condition, reduces us down to an inspirational quote. And I think the other thing is stop telling people to be stronger, be better versions of themselves. Sometimes it's all right to feel like shit and sit in your hole and do nothing. And some, sometimes it's good to get up and actually go at the world a little bit. But it's the Andrew Tate nonsense that we've been bombarded oh, with. And God, all this what is that? Bullshit. Here's the thing I had, and I know I'm getting way off center here, but we need better role models. Yeah. You know, in politics, we need better role models in, in you know, we look at some of our favorite sports people who are now getting into bed with war crime, you know, human rights violators of the highest order. Where's the morals and the ethics Where's that person? You know, I'm not a psychologist, but one thing I've learned, I've worked with psychologists for the last six years. We've defined schools programs. We're, in a, we're nearly a thousand primary schools in Ireland. We did that because what we believe is the most powerful way to support young people is to, to and all of us, is that our happiness comes in connection with other people. And I mean real connection. It comes in relationships and how you forge them and how you hold them and sustain them and build them. That's where your happiness yeah. lies. It does not come by looking at Andrew Tate and TikTok. It comes from actually getting in front of these people in your tribe and actually connecting with them properly and building that connection and actually feeling that connection. And we live in a society that thinks it's really connected, but it really has never been more disconnected. It's been never more. We promote individualism. We don't promote collectivism. The biggest issues we face as a world in the world right now will not be solved by individualism. We will not solve climate change by, by dividing Twitter. The only way we can solve these massive issues facing society and social issues is collectively together. And yes, you're going to disagree on things, but we need to stop ripping each other limb from limb. It's just not... Just to bring it back to the music, you know, this this fandom that goes on, you know, say be it Taylor Swift fans or like... I ran afoul of Jedward fans very innocuously about two years ago, and it went on for about three weeks, the abuse, that I, I would find that social media has lent a voice that too many people are paying notice to. They're being pandered to when they kick up a fuss, I think they'd be given too much power. That people on the internet, Twitter followers, fans, this, that, and the other, the toxic fandom that has emerged with some of the bigger artists, I think mm-hmm. I think that is a massive problem for the music industry. And I think and, that and, is something and, and, that it, it, the likes of Taylor Swift or these people who have these fans need to step up and tell them to back down and back off. I think a lot of that was designed. I think it was Katy Perry was the first person who started to name her fan base. Yeah. Which was obviously a marketing employee that was really successful. I don't know what she called them, but it was really successful. It was some marketing guy in a label decided to come up with this thing. And then Lady Gaga did oh, it. The monsters. And then you create a tribe and that tribe builds in community and community is really positive yeah. if you do positive things with yeah, the community. Yeah, yeah. And most of it is really positive, but it's that vitriol that you see. It's, 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 it's kind of a strange thing. Um, I think the word fandomonium is, oh. is it, what it feels like. But I, I, I mean, I've been... I've found myself on the receiving end of One Direction fans sometimes, mm. and even though I'm good friends with my Lord, and I do, you just, but I just think all of this, all of this, it feels for me, a relatively mature guy who's been around the world long enough, I find this really hard. I find it really intense and overwhelming. Mm. And I just wonder if I'm feeling that way, you know, maybe young people are just fine. Is it causing you to adapted? retreat, do you think? Yes. Yeah. That's, it is. But that's what I find I'm self-censoring mm-hmm. in so much as like, oh, I just I have you something think. to say. And like, do, is it worth it? This is really important. Though. And, and I this think, is this, yeah, this, this conversation. Like I'm, re- I'm withdrawing yeah, and, a lot. And maybe that's, I'm not, you're I'm one missing of the out in my heart. nicest taste, guys I could, you could meet. I know, I, I think I know enough, you know yeah. you enough to know what type of intentions you have as a person. So that should allow us to have a conversation that might take on sensitive subjects. Yeah. And actually open and dialogue. And it does not mean, this is really important, I think, because is one thing I believe in more than anything in this world is equality. I believe we have to fight for social justice. I think we, we have a, lot, a long way to go on it. But I have a different opinion on how we get there. And I, I, we started with Lust for Life, which is once again my charity. We started this Compass Talking campaign, which is essentially like activism academies. And the first line I said to people on it is shouting at people on Twitter is not activism. Activism is really tough and difficult and overwhelming. But it is, you know, and inactivism your audience is not the people who agree with you. Slacktivism. It's the is that people, yeah, yeah, it's the people who don't agree with you. Yeah. They're the ones you got to, there's no point in shouting yeah. and talking to the people who are already on your side. So we got to find a better way to have dialogue. That does not mean, does not mean you condone or you tolerate just arseholes who want to be, you know, hated, horrible, horrible, horrible words. You, you, no one has the right to have that. You don't have to listen to that. But there's many, many people out there with massive hearts who are a little, 
who need a little bit more patience, who've lived up a generation like I have, where it was bet into us left, right and centre. We're not going to, it might take us a bit longer to get on, on board with things, but be patient. Have those conversations. It's the impatience. That's a good way. I actually. call it. Yeah, it's the my impatience. word I call it is dinner table democracy. Sit yeah. around the table having dinner chat yeah. about this stuff. We all disagree on certain things. But at the end of the day, if you're if you're a half decent person with a big heart, then, you know, everyone's going to have conflict. But it's how you resolve and deal with that conflict. But the problem is social media has has created an inability to have constructive. I think there's an unwillingness. It's where context yeah. goes to diet. Yeah, exactly. So without context, there is zero fucking point. That brings us to our final choice, your final choice in your rundown of your recorded history. I don't even know where to begin with this, man. So it's, it's album three. Uh, Brezzy, what is it? It is, without doubt, the most important album in my life. Uh, Tom Waits' Closing Time. Wow. 1973, his mm-hmm. debut album. That As debuts do, go. They didn't do well, though. It didn't do the well. Billboard yeah, charts, it, no. Neither side of the Atlantic. I would have thought the English critics. Until he married an Irish woman and everything it. changed around. He should have done some... T- 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 Tom Waits and TikTok would have been... <laughs> I would... Live, eat, and <laughs> read. <laughs> yeah, just, you <laughs> I would eat. He, I, I, it's too much to tell you on this record, but it is. Here again, I'm going to reveal some of my own prejudices here. We were up in Camden Studios some years ago with a with a radio show, and you performed, you were doing a live track. I was producing the show at the time. I was like, oh, Brezzy's on next, great. And I was had my clipboard and I was running around like an Egypt. And you, okay, Brezzy's up. Okay, go. And you sat down at the piano, you sang Grapefruit Moon. Mm-hmm. And my, my jaw dislocated. Such was the, well, first of all, awe at the beautiful version you did. But I would, I, I was like, Brezzy, the Blizzards, doing Tom Waits. I wouldn't have put the two of you, you and Tom Waits together. And that's a reflection of my own, I suppose, mm-hmm. narrow-minded view, yeah. I suppose, of you and your, I suppose, your milieu at the time. But you did an amazing version of it. So I was expecting, really, to be fair, to see some Tom Waits on the list. Again, can you, I know it's impossible to ask, but can you even try to explain why you've chosen? I I can. Um, I'll bring it to London. I lived in London when I was 25, 26. The band took a break or broke up, whatever way you look at it. And I moved to London. Um, You were working with Simon Fuller then, was it? I was, yeah. I had a really good job. Uh, I wasn't well. It's the best way to describe it. It's it, I was on a lot of medication at the time. I was in and out of kind of kind of bouts of depression that would last sometimes two, three weeks and very kind of difficult ones. I I don't really know why it was particularly difficult at that time, and I was in in and out getting help, and I um I started struggling. I think it all happened because I started struggling massively with insomnia. Now, anyone who's lived with insomnia oh, yeah. at a kind of high level, it's it's a really, really... I go through it at the moment, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it always passes as one important thing to say about it, but it, it is a really difficult experience. And I was going through a, a long bout of it now. And the difficulty of it all is that, you know, at a time when your mind needs rest, you can't get that rest. and It, it just can't feels like it's no just sleep. chaos. Yeah, and that's what was happening to me. And uh, I ended up like trying everything and then I just got I, I used to listen to this record a lot and it always reminded me of a, a lad sitting in some shit bar in New York sitting up <laughs> well, at the was. piano yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and just half half drunk with a whiskey and a fag hanging out of his mouth singing the songs so I used to pretend I was sitting in that bar up at the bar yeah. and I went back to this guy and he was playing the album and I would listen to the album like I was in the room with him and I would close my eyes and one night I, I put on this and I'll try this, put on the album and I literally visualized myself in the room and I fell asleep by Grapefruit Moon. It was the first time I slept in about three months. And I remember waking up feeling empowered that I had figured out how to maybe do this. Maybe I can settle my mind by just focusing on something that wasn't what was going on in my head. And every night I put on that album, every single night. And after about a week of listening to that Tom Waits record, I, kept, I fell asleep every night. And then once I got into that pattern of sleep again, Insomnia wrote it away. My mind settled a little bit. And that was the Tom Waits records that did that. And I I mean, I've the real Alan Partridge story because I have it tattooed all over my arm. <laughs> and I, I said to my mum, if I ever meet Tom Waits, I'm going to show him. She was like, I wouldn't do that. You know, <laughs> Tom Waits oh, yeah. sprinting down grass. Where are you mentalist? Going, yeah, where are you mad? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, that record has always done that for me. And then, yeah. And then what, what I started to do was I started to learn the songs on the piano and, and play them whenever I felt 
really, really un, uncomfortable and shaky and stuff. So that record had a lot. Of course. A and I think I was listening life. to this again this morning. I listened to it last night. I think it's a nighttime record. It's not when it doesn't hit as effectively when the sun is blaring. It's not a gym record. No. No. So uh, I listened to it last night and from the track one all the way through. And I, I actually found a quote. I want to read you out a quote from the Rolling Stone review of this, which I thought was lovely, actually. This came out just after the album was released back in 73. And this is what he, um, this is what the Rolling Stone reviewer Tom Waits is more than a chip off the Randy Newman block, though he sounds like a boozier, earthier version of the same and delights in rummaging through the attics of nostalgia. The persona that emerges from this remarkable debut album is Waits' own. At once sardonic, vulnerable and emotionally charged, his voice is self-mocking, bordering on self-pity, and most of his songs could be described as all-purpose lounge music, a style that evokes an aura of crushed cigarettes and CD bars and Sinatra singing One For My Baby. Wow. Jeez, I've, well, I've they, got don't write, they don't write reviews like that they anymore. Don't. They don't. They it's, just, I must send it on to you. It's how do I write art. something that'll get people tweeting? I think that album, um, th- there was many elements to it. The lyrics, mm. you know, Martha is literally the most, the greatest love song ever written. I, I genuinely think it's that. The pia- it's the piano at the, be- at the, it's the beginning. The, the vulnerability the of the piano. It's like almost like a child playing the piano. But it's the last do, do. lyric. Yeah. I remember yeah. trembling, you know, evenings trembling next to you. I'm like, oh my God, like it's just powerful, powerful right songwriting. And it's just classic songwriting. It isn't, there's no Pro Tools, there's no... Yeah, because the, the lyrics are, and I'd say this, they're cornball. But I yeah. mean that in the best possible sense. They could have been a Cole Porter classic from the 30s. But you know what they were? They had these beauty, beautiful thing that lyrics don't do all very often. They tell a story and the very last line turns the story in its head. Yeah. And I love when lyrics say that. I hope I don't fall in love with you. It does the exact same. Marta does the same. And, and Grapefruit Moon, the lyric. Uh, so there's a song, and we, we wrote an album, um, Blizzard's new album, and the last song on the album is called Closing Time. And it's basically this story I just told you when I was yeah. not well and how I used to listen to this record. And it's just me with the acoustic, but it's, it sounds like a Tom Waits track. And it's basically, I just, I talk about every song in the, the album. And I, I, the chorus is just the songs from the record, you know, um, Old 55, I hope it don't fall in love with you, Virginia Avenue mm. and old shoes. You know, Midnight Lullaby, I'm not quite asleep yet. Marta and Rosie as you pause for a cigarette. And it's me in the room. And that's what that song is. But I remember recording that. And like, it really was a special recording. Like the Blizzards, you, we just don't do this. We just sat in the room and we just recorded it. And it, like, it was just caught wonderfully. And it's my was favorite that your song. kind of like thank you letter almost all it is. to the record. Yeah, yeah, and I don't want to ever meet him. You know, yeah. I don't need to meet him. Oh, God. Um, yeah. I tweet I, him. Yeah, I, I, I have tweeted him, weirdly enough, a few times, but like he's a new release of him. He's so, just so he'd react. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just, I think yeah. anyone who hasn't listened to that record, if you ever feel a little bit like the world is, is moving too fast for you, mm. pretend you're sitting in on some shit. A lot of people have covered these tracks, obviously. Yeah. Famously, Old 55. The Eagles. By the Eagles. Them, yeah. And, you know, no disrespect to the Eagles. Didn't work. A lot of love for the Eagles. Uh, unfairly disparaged for for the most part. But I suppose my point is here that the record is, the songs are, the lyrics, obviously the piano and the production, but it's it's Waits himself. You know, it's like a character actor. It's like a, a comedy piece or like, uh, there's only like Steve Coogan doing Alan Partridge. There's only one person that can do Alan mm. Partridge. There's only one person that can sing a Tom but Waits. The other song. thing I think that's important about pop music and rock music and all this is there's a certain element and I think it's important I say this is that you know, the likes of Prince or whoever you were into. I don't want to know everything about my pop stars. Mm-hmm. I don't need to know what they had for breakfast. I don't want all that detail that we have to get now on social media about them. I love the mystery of pop music. I love the mystery of the person behind the, the mic. Like, for example, Prince. No one truly ever knew who he yeah. was or what he was. No one ever truly knew Tom Waits or who he is. And that's why, how I want to keep it. Because it makes yeah. me feel like he's almost otherworldly. And you need that from a pop star. You need that feeling that you're like, you're living in a, in a world where this person's just a little bit, yeah, like just up there. And that, that's why I love, you know, back to Pearl Jam. I actually met Eddie Vedder. I forgot to say that. In oh, a, here in we a, go. No, 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 no. Not, M- not myself and Tom Waits were playing golf. I never met that. Tom Waits, but I met Eddie Vedder in a bar randomly wow. in London. And he was with four other people. And I never in my entire life had asked anyone for photographs. So I said, fuck, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to do this. So I waddled up to him and I was obviously terrified and I went up to him, can I get a photo? 
And he went, no. Oh. And I went, oh my God. I went, oh, sorry, I'm really sorry for, for it. He goes, you are way too fucking big. So he, he there's oh. a picture of him okay. standing on a chair Phew. with me, but he's on the chair and my head's on his shoulder. And it's like, it's a shit picture. It doesn't matter, man. It's lovely. But it's like, I put it up and he was the kindest, loveliest man I'd met in so long. You can tell. And he just, and then he just wandered off into the night. And I was like, that's Eddie Vedder. I think no matter what your soup of the day is in terms of your artist, whoever you love, I think we've got so, so used to, to almost passively listening to music. One of the things I teach, obviously, is mindfulness. And one of the best ways to teach it is music. Yeah. You say to people, stop listening to music passively. Close your eyes. Think of that vocalist behind the microphone in the studio or the detail. Think of the talent, the craft that got them to that place. Think of all those different things. Don't just think of this as noise coming out of your speakers, your headphones. Get into the room with them. Get into the feeling of it. And that is how we should mindfully. That's what we did when we bought albums and we opened the inlays and we we were completely mindfully submerged in the music. And I think music for me is the easiest way to access mindfulness because mindfulness has just been present moment focused, non-judgmentally. That's all it is. And it's so difficult to be that in the modern world because this world doesn't want you to be there. So music for me, for anyone who finds it difficult to access things like meditation, music is the most meditative thing you can do if you listen to it the right way. And also I think that harks back to a previous point, maybe I'm stretching it a little bit here, but with the sales of vinyl being so strong and on the up, I think there's a certain kind of theatre to getting your vinyl, mm-hmm. taking it out, placing it on the record, the needle. And it's that kind of, I suppose, ceremony before you listen to the music that I think gets people ready then. Well, I heard a I'm ready to listen that, to a track. That, and you uh, listen to it more intently if you've gone to the effort. The vinyl thing. I spoke to a guy who's basically has a job within the labels and he says most of the stories they're getting around vinyl is dads yeah. and mums buying it to play it to their kids Amazing, yeah. and say this was what I listened to this is what your dad listened to sit and listen to me with me and they're getting this completely new experience to music and it's a totally different thing for them so we have this new generation that kind of understands that music means more to us than a dance on TikTok and you know it very much for me music has been the foundation to my entire life so I think vinyl is just a, a kind of a side effect of that and, and what's happening again. Because I think nostalgia, whether it's going back to old shit TV or old something that we watched, uh, there's no better nostalgia than music, I think. Yeah. It'll never go away. No way. Lovely finish, Brezzy. Thank you so much for Pleasure. spending your time. Before we let you go and head off to play golf with Niall Horan. With Tom Waits. With Tom Waits, imagine yeah, I yeah. bet he's like up for five yeah, guys. He's probably shot. playing off scratch. Yeah, but I'm going to ask you the dreaded question. Of the three that you've given us oh, today, fuck. you've got 10, Super Unknown, and Closing Time by Tom Waits. You can only pick one, I'm afraid, for no reason whatsoever. Which one is it and why? Well, I have him tattooed on the arm, so I'd have to say Tom Waits. And I'll tell you a quick one when I got that tattoo. One of the lads in the blizzards when I came in, I was like, oh, look, and he went, why did you get Mick Hucknall on your arm? <laughs> When I see it. It does look a bit like... Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, okay. But that's the glow. No, if you, if you stretch your yeah, arm up, when you flex your... Yeah. When I flex it, it doesn't oh. look like... But when I actually let my arm rest, it looks like my coconut. Okay. Never let so your arm I lo- rest. I love Simply Red. They write great tunes. But no, it wouldn't <laughs> be in my top three records. So yeah, Tom Waits closing time every time. Brezzy, thank you so much. Cheers. Thanks a million, guys. Yes, there he is. The impossibly interesting, inspiring, and, well, annoyingly tall Brezzy. He's the real deal, let me tell you. Such a warm and powerfully honest man. And thanks again to him for sharing his life and recorded history with us all today. A giant of a man in every respect. Now, if you haven't heard or want to go back and revisit one of the records that Brezzy mentioned, or you just want to get one you love yourself, then we'd absolutely love if you supported our partners at therecordhub.com. We simply couldn't make this podcast without their supreme support. I do hope you enjoyed our crate dive together and that you'll join me next week and every Sunday after that. Next week, it's an absolutely fascinating episode with the great Gavin Riley. I've been Ed Smith. This has been Recorded History. Now hit the old subscribe button and become a weekly listener. But above all, and as I always say, subscribe to yourself. You're all just wonderful. Go on. Go Loud presents Recorded History. Hosted, produced and researched by me, Ed Smith, at Go Loud Studios. The show was created and executive produced for Go Loud by D-Ready.
Our series is proudly supported by TheRecordHub.com, your local Irish and online record store.